You're listening to Writers on Writing, a show about the art, craft, and business of writing. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett. Today I'm speaking with Hallie Sutton. Hallie Sutton is a writer and editor who lives in Los Angeles. She graduated from Otis College of Art and Design with a master's degree in writing and from the University of California, Santa Cruz with a degree in creative writing. Her first novel, The Lady Upstairs, was published by Putnam in 2020 and was nominated for a Lefty Award. Her second novel, The Hurricane Blonde, was published by Putnam in August 2023. Her writing has appeared in Ms., The Daily Beast, The Los Angeles Review of Books, Crime Reads, Crime Spree Magazine, and more. On the show, we talked about writing about Hollywood, backstory, names, revision, creating composite characters, and what to leave out. Before we bring her on, a few words about Patreon. Please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash writersonwriting and becoming a supporter. Since 1998, when Writers on Writing began broadcasting at KUCI-FM on the UC Irvine campus, and later in 2005 when podcasts began, became a thing, we've never taken a break. During COVID, we began doing the show from our homes. It's entirely a volunteer effort. We don't have sponsors. It's just Marie and me hosting and producing with Travis Barrett, who does the music and sound editing. Even a few dollars a month will help us to continue bringing the show to you. And now for my talk with Hallie Sutton. Hallie, I'm so glad to have you back. Actually, we talked for The Lady Upstairs. We did. It's so nice to speak with you again, Barbara. Thank you for having me. To talk to you. Once again, your writing shines. It's so fun to read The Hurricane Blonde. Um, I mean, it's you know, the mystery, of course, the thriller, but all the, you know, all that Hollywood stuff that, that I've always loved to read about all the sort of insider stuff, maybe take a minute or two and talk about how the hurricane blonde came about. Yeah, sure. Uh, so thank you. Thank you for that compliment, by the way. Uh, and that was by far my favorite part of writing this book too, was kind of digging into all the Hollywood lore stuff. So This book came about, I was trying to figure out what my second book was going to be, whether or not it was going to be a follow-up to The Lady Upstairs or something new. And I had generated a list of ideas for my my agent that we were going to pitch to my editor. And one of them, I think it was the very last one on the list, and it was the one I had spent the least amount of time thinking about, was um, Murder Bus Tour Guide Discovers Body on Tour. And (laughs) it kind of came out of their true crime bus tours through uh, Los Angeles and particularly in Hollywood. And I've taken many of them, particularly when I first moved to LA, it was kind of like a weird way to get to know some of the mythology of the city. Um, And so I just kind of threw that on there because I was like, you know, this is, I'd had an idea maybe for a short story I wanted to write in that vein. I thought it was something interesting. There had been a scene um, with a true crime bus tour in the first book that had gotten cut because it just didn't fit. Um, and my agent was like, that, that's it. She was like, that's, that's something I haven't seen before. That's something fresh. So that was kind of the very first part. And then the second part really comes out of, um, developing who Sama was as a character and that she was part of this really famous family that she had herself been a child actor 
came out of really um, my love of all things Hollywood. And also, while I was in grad school, I was lucky enough to study under Paul Vangelisti, who is a poet and translator, and he's like a noir poet as well, writes a lot of noir poetry, just like a beautiful writer. And he had all these crazy stories about... Um, Hollywood in the 70s when he was covering kind of um, fame for the Hollywood Reporter and he would tell us these like very off the record stories and that kind of bloomed into something for me. So I kind of put those two parts together and created the story for the Hurricane Blonde. So when you were doing the tours, were, were you writing crime fiction at that point? I, I so yes. I, I was. I um, had just kind of dabbled into it. I When I first moved to uh, Los Angeles, I hadn't totally known that I was going to be a crime writer. I knew that I had this really strong voice of a character in my head who was Joe from my first book, The Lady Upstairs. And I was kind of trying to figure out which story she belonged in. And then I started going on these crime bus tours. I started kind of digging into my own obsessions and realized like, oh, I'm obsessed with murder and crime and noir and always have been. Like, of course, that's the vein I'm going to write in. I don't know why it took that so long to click for me, um, but it really did. And so then it was kind of like, oh, yes, of course, this is my lane. You know, this is I've loved these books. I've loved these stories for so long. What did you read as a kid? Oh, I read across the board as a kid. I um but I really loved, uh, I loved Janet Ivanovich when I was young. Really? I loved, um, there was MMK had these uh, stories that were mysteries and kind of romance novels set in different countries. Um, I read, I also read fantasy and science fiction. I just kind of consumed everything. Well, back to the bus tours, um, because yes, yeah, so Salma is, drives for a company. Um, a true crime tour. And it made me think of Esoteric in LA. Mm -hmm. Is that one that you used to go on? I have taken like seven tours through <laughs> Esoteric. They're great. They do. I think they do a really great job. They're um, a local company here in Los Angeles that do a variety of different, um, I would say true crime and literary tours. Like they do. Uh, I think one of the first ones I went on was the Raymond Chandler tour of Los Angeles. There's an Elmore Leonard tour of Los Angeles. They do every so often James Kane. Um, they do a great job of kind of unearthing those stories and taking you to really interesting parts of Los Angeles. So I loved those. I went on those a lot. And then there was also, um, oh, I'm so, the Dearly Departed tours, the tragical history tours of the Dearly Departed out of Hollywood is another one that I spent a lot of time <laughs> riding their <laughs> rails, so to speak. <laughs> I have always wanted to go on one and I was about to, and then COVID hit. And if you ever want to go on one together, Barbara, I would love yeah. to go with you. All right. All right. I would love to, because that, you know, some of the, I was just looking at that this morning, their website. I'm like, oh, I want to go on that one. And James Kane and, you know, all of these. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So Hurricane Blonde, I made some notes, um, things that really just stuck out for me. And one was um, your details are not generic, you know, like this is the thing we're always told as writers, no generic details, right? Right. I mean, like you describe Roger, uh, one of one of um, the important characters, you say he was handsome in that improbably symmetric leading man way. He'd have to work twice as hard to be taken seriously. And then a sentence later, you describe how he sounds and you say Aussie accent biting through. So I just love that because I've never read that before as a way of describing anybody. And I wondered if... Um, if you have, if that's one of your strengths, if you have a special talent for getting these sorts of details um, through the first time, 
Or is that something that happens in revision? Or is it a little of both? I think it's a little of both. I think that all, um, and thank you, by the way, that's extremely kind of you. I think that like all writers know that feeling of when you stumble into something and you're like, oh, that's wonderful. And sometimes that happens on the first pass if you're really lucky. This book went through so many iterations and there were so many times that I was highlighting passages just being like, this is all cliche. Like this is the, it's, and that's, the scaffolding you have to use, right? Like, I really believe that that's part of the process of revision is that sometimes the very first draft is really cliche, but it gives you something to kind of mold and shape and be better. So there was a lot of me highlighting stuff and writing extremely verbally abusive notes to myself in my track changes that like, (laughs) just not nice things um, about how to make it better. But uh, so I'm, I'm really glad that that felt like that had shaped up that way to you. Another thing that that made me think of with, um, I mean, I think some of those also come about through what we would call artistic stealing, you know, like not plagiarism, but like seeing somebody use a verb, like biting through in terms of an accent, um, somewhere else or something like that and going like, that's a really effective way to do that. And so I really try to, when I read really pay attention to like when something really hits for me, why, why is it hitting? What is this doing? And what can I do with my own craft to kind of reflect that? So when you do that, when you come across those passages, do you mark up your books? Do you make notes in a, in a journal? What do you, how do you remember? Yeah, I definitely mark up my books, um, particularly as I'm drafting. I think that's the time that I really start like frantically looking at other authors that I love and admire and being like, okay, how are they doing this? Like, how does their finished product look? Um, And, but I also, I definitely write everything down in my journals. Now, the frustrating thing about journals, I do it very analog. I always keep a physical journal and I always have it with me in my purse or wherever I go. But I don't have a great system for coming back to it. So sometimes there's something where I've written down where I'm like, I know this would help. And I'm just flipping through like three or four different journals, trying to read and remember what it was that one piece. So I need a better system for that, but I always write everything down. I learned that I think years ago, and sometimes I forget it. And I have to remind myself, you're not going to remember the thing, you know, like the thing that stands out to you, the, the idea that seems really good or fresh, you're never going to remember it four days later. You need to write it down somewhere. Hmm. Yeah. If you figure out a way to organize, let me know, because I have like a million journals going on at the same time. And I'm like, well, what, I know it's somewhere, right? It's right. Somewhere. <laughs> Honestly, Barbara, I feel the same way. And if any listeners have any ideas, let us know. I'm looking. <laughs> I know my, my son, he, of course, does it on his phone, right? So he keeps his, I'm like, I can't do that. I can't. It doesn't work for me somehow. Yeah. It's not the same magic typing something in as it is writing it out longhand, at least for me. No, me either. Well, there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff and making movies. And I wondered how much of it was true to fact and how much was fiction, because it all feels true. I mean, for instance, um, the pressure the director puts on the hurricane blonde in the story, the eating regimen, um, remaining in character on the set. So I'm curious about all that. And then I was also curious if you grew up around auditions and sound stages, or did you just do a ton of research? 
that is the nicest, like most flattering <laughs> question because I didn't. So I'm so glad that it feels authentic. That's really what I was going for. Um, I did do a ton of research kind of in a, in a several different directions with that. So um, I'm lucky enough. I do live here in LA. And so I took a couple backlot tours while I was drafting this just to get like certain things. So there are certain details in the book that came out of those backlight tours. For example, back, excuse me, backlot tours. For example, I talk a lot about the wigwag on um, studio lots, which was not a thing that I knew, but it's a red light that exists outside of um, like sound stages when they're filming so that people know they're filming not to disturb anybody. And that plays like a crucial part in one of the scenes in the book. Mm -hmm. um, but just I think it's really finding those very specific details that can afford you as a writer to get away with sounding like, you know, maybe a lot more than you do. Like I definitely did my research, but I'm not somebody who grew up on set. So trying to find those really authentic pieces was really key. Um, another thing was lucky enough that one of my best friends here in Los Angeles works um, on commercial production. So she got me on to the film set of a commercial that she was working on just so that I could kind of observe what it looked like, what the whole kind of mess of everything was. And that was pretty informative and crazy. Um, now for the other details in the book, I did do a lot of research um, in terms of reading. There's a great book called The Method by Isaac Butler, which is about the history of method acting, which I found, um, it was one of my favorite reads of the last uh, couple of years. And it was really informative and had a lot of kind of intense stories about how far actors will go to hone their craft. And that was really interesting to me. Um, and I also knew that I wanted to be kind of explicitly wading into the conversation of, I think directors in particular in Hollywood kind of get this weird latitude to be able to ask a lot of things from people in the name of art that we would find dehumanizing in just about any other field. But if you get a product that sells out of it, it's kind of like, oh, well, that's just his process. And we see this in stories from Alfred Hitchcock to Truffaut, like not let alone the driver or excuse me, the directors of modern day films too. Um, so I definitely mind a lot of real life stories and either kind of use details from them wholesale or changed it just a little bit. But I mean, you don't have to scratch very far to find truly insane stories about what has happened on film sets to, um, you know, that, that are justified in the name of making a great movie. Mm -hmm. So was Cal the director in the story, was he a composite of directors or how did you come up with his character? Yeah, he was kind of a composite of directors. I wanted him, <laughs> I'm going to start naming people who are still <laughs> alive, but let's just hope nobody like picks it up and sues me. I wanted him to have kind of the cultural cachet of a Quentin Tarantino character who kind of, you know, came out of the gate really young and hot and kind of has really shaped how movies have been made in the last couple mm -hmm. decades. Um, I also wanted him to have, uh, there's certain things particular to Hitchcock that I lifted, um, certain nods to Polanski as well, uh, kind of just composites of all of these men who, maybe maybe Tarantino less so, but certainly some of the like giants of um, filmmaking have also been known as like really pretty terrible people to work with. And so I was definitely kind of uh, creating an homage of my own <laughs> in that way. <laughs> and you did. <laughs> so Salma's family, um, what a history of this family. And as I was reading, of course, I'm thinking 
how much did you know before you even started? I mean, it goes back so far. There's like each one has a history who of of this family. So did you do all that before you began the book or do you do it as you go along or? I kind of, I, I, I did it a little bit of both. Um, and I, I wish that I, I'm a person whose process for writing is pretty messy and that's like, just, uh, I wish it was different, but that's how it is for me where I kind of, I am not a full outliner. I'm not somebody, it probably would have made more sense if I had built like these full character backstories as I went. Um, but I knew pieces of them. And then as I was writing, other pieces became apparent to me. So for example, I always wanted Salma's mother to come from kind of this Hollywood lineage. Like I am obsessed with reading books about Hollywood history and have been since I was a kid. I did a history day project on Clara Bow and Jean Harlow. And um, so I was really lifting a lot of details of similar actors um, in her in her field, like Angelica Houston or somebody who really kind of comes from this lineage of like, as long as you can have been in Hollywood, her family has been in Hollywood. And that gives her this kind of entrenched status in a weird way. Um, and then I was also creating a little bit on the fly. Like, I think it wasn't until maybe my second draft of the book that I really understood that, like, it wasn't just that I wanted this family to have standing in Hollywood, that, like, that this history of you know, that they had both been movie stars and both been really famous. I wanted her parents explicitly to have worked on a movie together that was considered like one of the American greats. And mm -hmm. that kind of in so doing would create this whole backdrop to play out some of the things I was really interested in, which was again, kind of the question of what do you do with great art made by bad people? Mm -hmm. And um, so that was when the idea for this noir film, that's sort of my like, vision of Chinatown or something that her parents had both starred in when they were younger. And that's where they'd met and fallen in love. That was sort of like where Salma's own personal mythology came from. Everything came out of this movie. Um, and then in the end, you realize that there are things that have happened in this, the course of filming this movie that of course uh, ha have long ranging consequences, even into further generations. Mm. I would love to hear you read. Oh, sure. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. I'll read a little bit from uh, the very first chapter of the Hurricane Blonde. Okay. The pretty blonde would be dead in three minutes. She stood in front of the Biltmore Los Angeles Hotel, wind snapping her black linen dress against her waist, revealing shiny spanks and spray tanned thighs. Ringed around her, a dozen true crime junkies baked under the September sun, leaking electrolytes, but not enthusiasm, not yet. For three more minutes, Beth Short, better known as the Black Dahlia, Los Angeles's most infamous unsolved murder, was alive to tell her story. I hitched a ride up from San Diego with a traveling salesman, the Black Dahlia said, a nice guy, married, you know the type. Melanie Gray, the actor embodying the Dahlia, pantomimed handsy, skimming her palms over her bodice. My murder tourists laughed, nudged each other. Yes, yes, we know. Stars Six Feet Under wasn't the only tour company in Hollywood that promised an insider's look at the macabre underbelly of fame. But we had something that set us apart. We had My Dead Girls. For four hours every day of the week, except Mondays and holidays, though you'd be surprised how many people preferred spending Christmas with murdered starlets over their own families. I could bring the dead back to life. I told him I was meeting my sister, but he wouldn't leave me alone. A gentleman. The Dahlia rolled her eyes. 
I sat in that lobby, trying not to play footsie with him for hours. She gestured to the Biltmore behind her. I'd heard the story a hundred times, but I couldn't help myself. I turned on cue with my tourists and stared at the hotel, glittering in the white sun. In 1947, when the Black Dahlia was murdered, the Biltmore was the largest, fanciest hotel west of Chicago. She was class and money and all the promise of Los Angeles. That mirage of fame and success and good fortune rolled up into one. Now, nearly a hundred years into her residency, ancient in this city, which preferred its buildings like its women, shiny, new, young, the Biltmore was starting to show her cracks. Sumptuous carpets, a little threadbare, gilded frescoes dingy and studied with gray gum patches old enough to vote. In the end, she had brought the Black Dahlia fame. Hmm. Is that Thank enough or should I keep going? That's great. I could I could listen to you read forever, actually. Oh, thank you. This is such a great beginning. And so was it always the beginning? I always knew I wanted to start on the tour bus. Um, I I really struggled with how to pick up like all the threads. There's one of one of the challenges of this book was kind of establishing all of the different pieces. Um like the mythology behind Salma's family, the kind of her relationship to Hollywood and to fame and to these murdered women that, you know, Hollywood has on this kind of weird pedestal in a sort of way. That's maybe not the right way to phrase it, but there's something very alluring to us about these women who have died too young in Hollywood, even though that's not really like the top crime factor in Los Angeles. Um, So I knew that all of that would probably have to converge in this one spot, it went through a lot of different iterations with different um, who who she was actually watching perform, um, and in the end, decided to go with the Black Dahlia because I think she has a kind of very special place in Los Angeles history. Yeah, and the Biltmore is so iconic. Yeah, right? beginning with that hotel. Um, did you have to leave anything out? I mean, was there you know after however many iterations went? No, nah, that has to. That that's maybe for another book or maybe. Yeah, there were definitely a lot of, um, I mean, the first draft of this book had like a a very different several storylines in it that are gone that I don't really miss. Those to me don't feel like things that I'll resuscitate. Um, You know, I felt like I could have dived more into even some of the Hollywood history pieces of this. Um, if, if I'd had my way to, I could have also written a lot more about Salma and her family and their backstory. Um, but it's this kind of constant tension between, you know, moving, moving the plot forward and indulging, you know, my whole vision of the family and all the things that they've gone through. And then also wanting to like do a lot of inside insider baseball around, you know, um, true crime in Los Angeles and its relationship to the city. And my editor was kind of constantly being like, okay, we need to pull back some of this. We can't have just like four pages about Clark Gable. And I was like, are you sure? Like, I'm pretty sure we can. <laughs> Somebody will want it. <laughs> so how do you keep track of everything? I mean, do you have things, I mean, you know, what I'm seeing behind you is very neat, but maybe what I'm not seeing, do you have anything on the wall or do you have notebooks or Excel spreadsheets or anything like that where you're keeping track? Definitely, definitely notebooks, um, Excel spreadsheets as well. I use Save the Cat Writes a Novel as kind of my um, drafting structure. Um, And I kind of do various iterations of that. Like I did a version of um, my, what they call the beat sheet 
um, 22 beats that kind of gets you from beginning to end of your, of your story. Um, I did a version of that for the first draft and then I keep also doing it for later drafts because it's really, to me, I'm kind of what they call, or I'm what people would call like an exploratory writer. Like I don't, I don't outline very much. I kind of, I'll outline certain points in my book and say like, okay, I think I know the midpoint, this is going to happen. I think I want this to be where the climax happens. Um, but a lot of it is me figuring it out as I go. So it requires a lot of kind of like re-outlining in a weird way to try to figure out like, am I hitting the right emotional beats at the right moment for what I have now? Um, so that happened in Word docs, that happened in notebooks, that happened in Excel spreadsheets. That's like, I have a whole Scrivener file that's just packed to the brim of <laughs> different thoughts on drafts. And it uh, it really helps me. I end up talking things through a lot with uh, writer friends. I find that like invaluable to just be able to brainstorm and put things, you know, does this work? What about this? If I do this, how does this affect that? So a lot of scribbled notes from those conversations too. And you use Scrivener? I do use Scrivener. I don't think I fully understand all of the capabilities of it, or I haven't bonded with it as well as some people have, but I do find it useful to be able to move pieces around and to like um, keep early pieces of drafts that maybe will never actually make it into the book. Like you know, anecdotes about when Salma was young that didn't make it into the book, but that really helped me understand who her character is. I'll keep that in there. And then sometimes, you know, cannibalize it to use certain lines out of it that really make an impact. Um, it, yeah, it's kind of my like traveling portfolio is how I think of it. So, so you said you will, you know, you do, do the beats with every revision. Is that what you said? Like you'll go through it and just outline it in that way again? Yeah, until I have something that feels really solid. Uh, I feel like for a long time, drafts feel really squishy to me where I'm like, it could be this or it could be this. And I start to know that I'm getting closer once I'm like, no, I know that this is the moment. So when things are still feeling squishy for me, um, I will often re-outline again and say, okay, this is where my midpoint is. How do we get there? And, you know, use all of the save the cat beats to look at it. And then from there kind of decide, is that right? Does that feel right? And then rearrange as needed. Um, oftentimes I'll do that like after writing the draft though. So I'll like write the second draft and then I'll do my second version of that outline so that I can see if it's actually kind of building in the right story shape and then use that to inform my next draft. Do you have an ending you're writing to? Sometimes, um, this book I didn't, um, which was hard. Uh, I knew, uh, let me go back and say, um, I knew the ending of there's kind of in this book, there's kind of two central mysteries, right? In the beginning of the story, um, Salma's sister was murdered 20 years before the book opens and the murder has never been solved. And she's, it's this kind of great, uh, open wound in her life where, um, it doesn't seem to like, of course it impacts her family, but she seems to be the one who's feeling it the most and it's derailed her life the most. Um, and then when the book starts, she winds up finding a dead woman at her sister's house where her sister had lived. And so that kind of propels her almost, if I can solve this one case, maybe I can solve my sister's case, or maybe I'll have a better understanding of what's happened. Um, so those were to me kind of the two mysteries of the book. And I knew the ending of one and I didn't know the ending of the other. And I tell you what, it is so much easier to write when you know the ending <laughs> where you're going. So um, 
that was really interesting and informative to me too. And thinking about for future projects, if possible, how much easier it is to know where you're going. <laughs> that sounds so obvious, but like, it's really helpful. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's something, I guess, pantsers don't necessarily know, or just, you know, a writer who's like into the discovery. It's mm-hmm. like, you want to know, but you don't want to know because you want it to be fun. Right. Right. <laughs> but you think if you know, it's not going to be fun, but it's actually maybe more fun in a way, if you know, because definitely, then, you know, you can have fun on the way. Mm-hmm. To, I don't know if that makes any sense. No, it absolutely does. And you're, and you're totally right. And, uh, For future projects, I will be trying to be that writer. (laughs) Well, I love the details about Chateau Marmont too. I mean, I had no idea about some of it and I won't go into details about what I didn't know, but but it has to do with Kirk Douglas and Natalie Wood. I'm like, oh, well, that must have happened or wouldn't be in this book. Even though with fiction, writers go, you know what? I make stuff up, but some things you don't make up, right? I mean, according to her, to posthumous accounts um, and from her own sister's account. Her sister's, uh, I don't remember, I'm sorry, I don't remember the title of the book, but it came out, I want to say in 2020 or 2021, her sister wrote a book about her life with Natalie Wood and Natalie Wood's death and what she actually thinks happened with the death. And she recounts very clearly this um, anecdote that is actually (laughs) way worse than what I put in the book. Although I did get pushback from legal who was like, can we say this? And I was also like, you can't slander the dead is actually a legal thing in American. So, but I did put in allegedly, but um, (laughs) <laughs> it seems I'm I'm inclined to believe the accounts from her sister who was allegedly waiting in the car with her mother at the um, Chateau Marmont like parking lot um, while this event took place and other things that Natalie Wood evidently said to friends. Um, so, yes. So and some of that actually came out of another book, which, again, I don't remember <laughs> the name of, but it's basically a history of the Chateau Marmont. And it goes into, you know how it was built, but then some of the like legends of the people who have stayed there, Marilyn's experience there, John Belushi, of course, like just, just create like such history, such Hollywood history contained in this one location. What about that though, in terms of, I mean, I guess historical fiction writers deal with this a lot, but in general, when you're dealing with history in fiction, I mean, do you think that it should all be accurate or because you're writing fiction is it fine to fudge I mean I don't know I mean I like it to be accurate when I'm reading fiction I still want the history to be accurate yeah I agree actually I think the history should be accurate um particularly when you're naming real people um you know, I land in, in that particular um, anecdote, I land on the side of believing a woman's account of what happened to her. So in my mind, I was mm-hmm. conveying it accurately. Um, but I agree because they're especially right now when we have so much misinformation and people who don't do their own fact checking, who read something somewhere, I do think it should be accurate. I think I think that there's also my experience writing this book in particular Hollywood history is so interesting to me, I think, because the accuracy is so confused with mythology, too, that there are things, you know, especially of like the golden age of Hollywood that people wrote their own 
autobiographies that are just false because they're trying to present a certain narrative of their life in accordance with the studio values and all these different things. And to me, that's endlessly fascinating to unpick, like the way that people present themselves versus the reality of who they are and how much of that is like entwined in Hollywood. So I felt a certain ability to have a little bit of latitude under, um, the idea that some of this is more about the mythology of Hollywood than the history of Hollywood, but all of it, there's nothing in there that I was just like, I'll just make this up. Some of this is more like, this is hearsay that I tend to believe based on certain things like the whole um, Clark Gable, Loretta Young story that came out years after he had died. And you know, that there are certain things there that um, are maybe not 100% verified, but that if you look at tend towards being the truth. Right. Yeah, that surprised me. I think I used to watch when I was a little kid, there was a show. She had a show, the Loretta Young show. Mm -hmm. Was that it? I don't know. I just somehow remember her gliding onto the screen and it's like. Absolutely. Seems. And she had like a very particular place in Hollywood. And I think the tragedy of that particular story is, you know, the way that maybe those certain trying to maintain her image. And I mean, I don't know if I should just share the story or not on air, but like, so the story is that allegedly um, Loretta Young, who is kind of held up as this kind of parable of like virginity and the nice girl, the girl next door, that was kind of who she played in all of her movies, um, had been filming Call of the Wild with Clark Gable. And they had a bit of an onset flirtation, uh, but that culminated with him date raping her. And she wound up pregnant gave birth to the baby, but could not at that time as an unwed mother be seen to raise the child. So she put the baby girl into an orphanage, adopted her years later as her adopted child, kind of under this like Christian charity banner. Um, and I think it in some ways ruined both of their lives, you know, that like that this thing had happened that she, she didn't have the support to deal with in this other way, or couldn't be seen to be dealing with in this other way. Um, they had a very strained relationship. Allegedly, she got the young girl surgery when she was eight years old to pin back her ears because they were starting to look too Clark Gable-like. Like, it is just kind of a mess of a situation um, that, again, is not, I should be saying all of this allegedly, but this comes out of Loretta Young's account before she died. I mean, it just is really a really awful situation, really sad. And uh, so playing with stories like that and finding ways to kind of interweave them into the book was like something I uh, was really interested in doing. Yeah, it worked. Worked for me. Um, <laughs> and you have a vodka drink in, in this book too, Lose Revenge. Is that a real drink that's called Lose Revenge or did you create it? <laughs> I created it and it's a nod to Lou. <laughs> <laughs> in the first book um, from the lady upstairs. That was another thing that I was, I mean, this is lightly like the Sutton Marvel universe kind of thing that I'm doing. My my version of LA, which should not be confused necessarily for real LA, um, where I was, there are a couple like McLeish is a recurring character. He was in the lady upstairs and he shows up again in the Hurricane Blonde. Um, there's a few mentions of Ellen Howard, who is in the first book. And then Lou's um, Revenge was kind of my little homage to Lou. Is it good? I actually haven't tried it. I should try it. <laughs> you know, I've never heard of celery bitters. It's like, okay. I've actually tried those and they are delicious. <laughs> it's kind of like crisp and salty. <laughs> you have to check it out. So then, okay. So you, you have a draft, it goes through your agent first. Do you go back and forth with your agent 
Or does um, actually, this book went straight to my editor because Putnam had bought it on um, option proposal. So that meant it went straight to my editor and poor Danielle had to do a lot of lifting with this book. It took, it was, everyone says writing a second book is really hard and they were really right. Um, and then doing it during a global pandemic was also not ideal for me. Like I was not a person who experienced a lot of cre creativity during the pandemic, sure. um, like of my own volition. I experienced it because I was under contract and had to. Um, and so we definitely went back and forth on this with probably four or five drafts. And there were some really major lifts and changes that we went through with it. But I was really lucky. Danielle Dietrich at Putnam, she's now at William Morrow actually, um, was, she's a dream editor to me. She like was willing to hop on the phone with me and talk things out for like an hour, you know, where I was like, I'm thinking this, but then if I do this, we have to change that. And it was just a really wonderful collaborative working experience with her. I'm so grateful. Otherwise this book would not exist in this form. <laughs> And the cover is so gorgeous. I mean, you. it's it's the reason it's a reason to have the book, even if you don't read it, because it's sort of like beautiful. Tell, talk you. about the cover. Did you see it early on or? I did see it early and I loved it. And I, I've had like two wonderful experiences with Putnam's cover artists, uh, you know, that often um, often I have heard horror stories from my writer friends like unless you're kind of a pretty big name person, you're not getting as much input on the cover as probably any of us would like. Um, for me, I'm also sort of like not a graphic design person, so that's fine. But um, they sent this to me and I was just like, I love it. The It's really feels really summery to me, the blue, the pink, like it has this sort of both modern, but kind of like throwbacky vibe to it, a little bit neon in it. And I just, I'm thrilled with how it came out. So they sent that to me. We made some gentle tweaks because at first it wasn't reading super thrillery. And then we started making tweaks to it that read maybe too thrillery. Like there was, it was anyway. Um, so I was, I was thrilled with how it came out. Yeah. And the uh, purple lips are good. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's like just a subtle, like she's dead under there kind of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But beautiful, right? She's mm -hmm. dead, but beautiful. So I wanted to ask you about names because Salma is such an interesting name and that's your protagonist, Selma Powell. And Selma, Salman is her nickname and her last name Powell brings to mind old Hollywood stars, right? Yes. So I'm curious, and then the mother is Vivian and sisters, Tawny. There's so many names in this book that are really interesting. Talk about coming up with names. Thank you. Yeah, I, I actually really feel like names are really key to me for connecting with a character that like, until I know I've got the right name, um, I, the character feels sort of wishy-washy. So Salma came to me really quickly. I wanted a name that felt... Um, sort of like regal, you know, that like somebody who was kind of in the position of being like Hollywood aristocracy would give their daughter, wouldn't just be like Anne, which is a lovely name, but you know, something that had like a little bit of that kind of Hollywood cachet exoticism to it. So, um, so that name I think actually came first. And then I was looking for a name that felt very, uh, old Hollywood. So that's where Powell comes from too, is kind of a direct lift there. Um, Vivienne's name took a while. That one was one that kind of, uh, there went through a couple of different iterations, but again, I wanted it to feel sort of 
regal and elegant and like an, like an old school movie star, you know? Um, and, and not that Vivienne is modeled directly on Angelica Houston, but that was like a big inspiration. So thinking about her, the name Angelica and this sort of, um, mystique she had cultivated over the years was really influential. Um, Tawny was kind of a name that popped like, and the only way I could make it work was that maybe her full name was Antonia <laughs> because Tawny doesn't feel like the same thing, but there was something too about that, that felt, um, very much in relation to, to me, the kind of beating heart of the book is Selma's relationship and love with her sister, like that continues even after her sister is gone. And Tawny to me just felt like the right name for growing up in the nineties of the like cool girl that she idolized, that she looked up to, that sort of had this, um, was kind of her blueprint of the, the woman that she wanted to grow into. Um, and so that, that's kind of where they, that name came from. So a lot of my naming comes from, yeah, like the, maybe the feelings of the characters in that way. And then kind of once I know it's right, it's really hard for me to change it, which is also like a, a strange thing. Like if my editor had come back and said, I don't think Salma's the right name for this. I would have been like, I don't know if I can write the book. You know, <laughs> like I would have been like, I'm too attached. <laughs> what about the title, The Hurricane Blonde? Mm -hmm. I was, yeah. Come? So the, <laughs> this is a, such a strange story. Um, <laughs> So I'm fascinated by the uh, Hollywood's relationship to blondes. And I, you know, do my own uh, Kirkland take on Chandler's taxonomy of blondes at one point in the book, um, but about kind of Hollywood's relationship to blondes. And there's that um, that great uh, podcast of You Must Remember This, the whole season they do the dead blondes, um, where they kind of look at all these different famous blondes in Hollywood. Um, and if you look at it, there's been this slew of um, female actors who have been named like Thelma Todd, um, who also unfortunately died young in I think the 1920s or 30s. Her nickname was the ice cream blonde. Jean Harlow was the platinum blonde. There's this weird commodification of women according to their hair color, but you don't see it for brunettes as much. Um, you certainly see it among racial lines, unfortunately, but like, um, so there was something there that I was really fascinated by that it like, it gives you this kind of cultural standing while at the same time also being kind of very demeaning. Mm -hmm. Um, and the hurricane blonde itself was, um, kind of came out of this very strange Hollywood story. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you want to include this. This is such a random thing, but feel free to, if you want to. So uh, what a movie I love um, is Romancing the Stone. And so I was one night reading about the making of Romancing the Stone. And it actually has this really interesting origin story where it was written by this young woman who was um, a waitress at a hotel in Malibu, or I'm sorry, at a um, restaurant in Malibu. And some of her like people who would come in regularly to see her and talk to her were movie stars. I think Nick Cage was one. There were a few others. And she pitched them this idea of this film that became Romancing the Stone. And she was working on um, a different film. She was doing an adaptation of a, a book that I think is Hungarian called The Blonde Hurricane. Um, and then she died in this really strange, untimely way. And I had been, as I was thinking about this book, I had been thinking, like looking up all these like strange ways that um, women had died in Hollywood and she has this kind of crazy story associated with it too. And so I kind of inverted the name. I had already been thinking about the blondes and thought about that and thought about the way to, um, in the book, it's the kind of this signal that Tawny has this reputation for being difficult to work with, that she's mercurial. And it's kind of ironic given that 
Cal in the book is so much worse to work with, but never gets like a crappy nickname. Um, so that was kind of all the pieces that came in together around that. I told you it's a strange story. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting how titles come about, you know, and, and, and at what point did you have it? Did you have that actually came really early. That was kind of shockingly early. Like, I think that that was, um, we sold that, um, we sold the book on option to Putnam with that title. And they were like, we might want to change it at some point, but then they were kind of like, no, I think actually like everyone it's like, it it gets your attention. And so, and I kind of knew that was the right title. Like from the moment we thought of it, I was, or like from the moment I thought of it and then suggested it to my agent, I was like, yeah, I think that's it. Whereas with the lady upstairs, I worked on that book for like three and a half years before being like, I think this is the title. (laughs) No, I think it's great. It's a great title for this. Um, so I I take it you're not, the next book is not Hollywood based. No, I think the next book I am headed out of the country um, to the South of France. And that kind of came out of um, wanting to travel during COVID, you know, wanting to travel and expand. I mean, I think I'm always going to be endlessly fascinated by Hollywood and LA. And I think I will return to it in the future, but kind of wanting to try something different. Um, and then probably having to go there as research, you know, what a hardship I'll have to do that. So that, uh, that was part of it. And then I kind of, you know, uh, another, I, I love kind of eighties movies. I mean, I think my first book tour, I called the unofficial body heat book tour. Um, <laughs> but this one is shaping up to be the same. I've already, you know, romancing the stone, but also I love dirty rotten scoundrels is like a favorite. So I think currently the, the third book is still really nebulous. Um, even in my mind, but I wanted it to be kind of a darker female driven take on dirty rotten scoundrels set in the South of France. Nice. So stuff that you took out that you had to leave out of this book, can you see it coming in some other project? Do you save those pieces and, and are you organized enough to know where they are so so that if you need them, you can get them? That's the question, Barbara. I save everything. I don't delete anything. Um, but it would probably be like, I would have to go through every file again and say, you know, what is this thing? Um, I think that there are probably things that I could reuse. Um, like, I, like I'm, I'm endlessly fascinated by, like I said, Hollywood history and would definitely return to that as a subject. Um, but I think, I also kind of think like, in my LA noir, I probably get one Hollywood book like a decade. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, I think I can't really make that my um, thing because I've I've kind of said a lot of what I wanted to say in this book, and then I'll have to have new new thoughts about it. But I could I could see myself returning definitely. I mean, it's such a shame. I know we all feel this way. It would be so easy if the writing process was really more efficient than it is. If you could just be like, right. and I sat down and I wrote the thing, and it was just this, and there's nothing extra. So it is always weird to have this extra material and be like, what do I do with this, you know? So do you have to be through with the book before you start thinking of the next one? I mean, at what point did you start thinking, oh, the next one's South of France and da, da, da. When yeah. That- um, I, I'm a very monogamous writer in that I don't, um, I don't really start working on a new one until I'm pretty done with the old one. Um, but that said, um, I actually came up with kind of the, I'll, I'll give you just like the very germ of where this came up um, for me was this idea of book three, I was actually out at lunch with my agent and I was sort of like, 
she kind of asked like, what are you working on? She was visiting LA and I was like, I don't, Sharon, I don't know. I never know. Um, I know people who have like five deep, like in their head, like this is my next one. And this is the one after that. And I'm not like that, but I was like, I, all I had were vibes. All I still have are vibes really, but it was like, I want it to be fun. I'm thinking the South of France. I'm thinking maybe con artists. And she was like, yeah, okay. And so then we were kind of talking things around and I came up with, the idea that's still going to be, um, I think where the book starts is kind of these, uh, two childhood friends who have been estranged, but have come back together and they are essentially squatting at a very, um, like a, a, a summer home for a billionaire who's not around and kind of passing themselves off as like part of the family. Um, so that's, that's where uh, it's kind of shifted since then, but it was kind of talking things through with my agent. I was like, oh, what about this? And then we kind of settled on that. Um, and so then building out a story around it. Uh, so I jot things down as they come to me because I don't want to ever lose anything, but I, I wouldn't say I was really, um, drafting anything while I was still working on the hurricane wand. When you are, when you do start a project, are you writing on, directly on the computer or do you write in notebooks or legal pads or how does that go? I kind of do both actually. So sometimes I'll sit down and be like, okay, chapter one, I have an image I have. I just want to kind of go and see where I can go. And then sometimes I'll just be somewhere and I'll just get like a flash of a scene and I just jot it down. So I kind of do, I kind of use both. And I find that like, I tend to like my writing more when I'm writing it down by hand, because I think it also gives me, um, I'm really not editing what I'm doing when I'm doing that because it's just like flowing freely. And then my chance to edit it is when I put it into the computer, whether I'm putting it into a Scrivener file or something else, then I can kind of sharpen it. And it feels, um, not like it's a whole new draft, but like, it's a slightly better version. Like oftentimes when I'm typing on the computer, I feel this sense of like, okay, this has to be good. You know, it's official. It's in a word document, <laughs> but, but by hand, I feel much more freed up. Sure. Do you have special fonts, um, that, or programs you like to use other than Scrivener? Do you use word and I use word. I use Google doc. I'll use anything I have access to, like, depending on where I am. Um, I don't really have special fonts. I tend to write, I think my default is sent to Calibri and then eventually I change it to Times New Roman because that's how I submit things. Right. Um, I've tried the thing before that can be useful when I'm really struggling to um, let go of my internal editor. Sometimes I'll type in Comic Sans or something <laughs> that like, cause so that you're like, it's not official. But to be honest, that font kind of annoys me. So <laughs> sometimes it backfires. <laughs> no, that makes sense. Um, okay, so the end of August, so this is going to be podcast, the beginning of August, the end of August, you're at BoucherCon. Yes. I'm at BoucherCon. You're on a panel on Wednesday. Yes. Yeah? Tell yeah. me about the panel. So the panel is um, writing hard-boiled noir fiction. Um, we haven't really seen any questions yet, but I'm really excited. Um, there's a bunch of heavy hitters with me. There's Dr. Larry Gandel. There's Valerie J. Brooks. There's Todd Goldberg, who um, has a new book coming out, uh, I think in September, the conclusion of his gangster series. And I love his writing. So I'm going to be a little bit starstruck and just be like, oh. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited about it. It's, uh, you know, the other, the this is only my second time going to Boucher Con. Um, and I, uh, the first time I went was before my book was out. So this is my first BoucherCon panel. So I'm excited and I'm nervous. Are you going to be there all weekend? I have to leave. <laughs> I'm leaving early to go to Paris. <laughs> oh. yeah. So feel very sorry for me, I'm sure. <laughs>
What, um, when's your panel, Barbara? I, I have two panels. One is on Thursday and cool. one is Saturday. Awesome. So I'll definitely make your Thursday panel. Good. Yeah. It's, I think that one's horror stories of the road. Ooh. You know, tours. So it should be yeah. fun. Yeah. So in ending, how about some advice or, or tips for the writers who are listening, who are perhaps working on a novel and uh, wanting to reach the end? Yeah, um, great question. So let's see. Uh, first, I would say do whatever it takes to get to the end that you really don't know what you have until you get there. I think that where I have seen a lot of really talented writers fall into a trap um, that I know, and it's not a trap per se, but it can it can make it really hard, is wanting everything to be perfect, wanting not to have to do the whole revision of it all. Um, and I know there are writers out there who don't have to do a lot of revision, but that's not the case for most of us, you know? So just being able to get to the end on a first draft is a huge accomplishment, and it's, like, really the first step. Like, and... I will also say um, crappy first drafts is a thing that I think everybody advises you to write. And people, well, I could, I shouldn't say everybody. That's common advice. And I always, when I'm in the middle of a crappy first draft, I'm like, surely they don't mean this bad. Like, it, they can't, <laughs> and like, yes, they do. However bad it is, that's what they mean. It's nobody ever has to see it. You can fix it. You can be as mean as you want to yourself in the margins. Um whatever you have to do to get through it. And then another thing I would say, um, I mean, so much of it is kind of this endurance sprint of a book um, is so different uh, than like a short story, or you have to kind of find ways to play games with yourself to keep yourself involved and invested in writing a book is my experience. So for me, it's often um, tying in noir illusions or Hollywood history, like that there's always some little game I'm playing with myself that maybe somebody else won't notice, but that's the thing that's kind of threading me along and keeping me going forward. Um, and then right every day is good advice that I don't follow, but I will say, um, what I do try to do is I try to write in my journal really frequently, even if it's just like a line of dialogue I hear on the street or somebody's name that I think is really evocative. I'll write that down, just something to kind of stay in touch with your writer brain um, as frequently as you can, even if it's not sitting down and writing a thousand words. Mm -hmm. Keeping familiar somehow, right? Yeah. So that you don't like totally have to start over after a week has gone by and you haven't done anything. Right. That's when it's like really intimidating. It's like, and it's oh. really scary. How I, so do curious, I remember how to do this? <laughs> so curious about how you talk badly to yourself in the margins. What will you do? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, Barbara, it is like verbally abusive. I mean, like to not like to keep it, to keep it cleaner. It'll just be something like the nice version is like, fix this, fix this later, make this better. Sometimes it's like all caps. What are you doing? <laughs> this is terrible. Like it's, and it's, um, it actually serves a couple of functions for me. I think like, so we're joking about it and it is funny, but I actually think that that helps me release my internal editor a little bit is like, yeah, I know it's bad. Like I'm acknowledging that it's bad so that it's not me panicking and going like, but 
but what if this is the draft you turn into your editor? I'm like, no, no, I'll get a chance to go back and fix it. And then the other thing is that usually when I'm really, when I'm really mean to myself in the margins, it makes me laugh. And it kind of brings this like lightheartedness to like, where I'll say something like go drown yourself in the bathtub. And then I'm like, all right, that's a bit much. It's a paragraph, you know, <laughs> like, so something about like being able to really indulge my inner, like, you know, melodramatic 13 year old while I'm writing keeps it more fun for me. <laughs> yeah. That's great. That's great. Well, it's just such a pleasure to talk with you. Helly Sutton, I wish you the best of luck with the Hurricane Blonde. It's wonderful. Thank you, Barbara. I so appreciate it. Such a joy to talk to you too. Thank you for letting me ramble. (laughs) You're welcome. Thanks to all of you for loving books and taking the time to listen. And a huge thanks to our Patreon supporters who helped to make this show possible. Thank you to Travis Barrett, who does our music and sound editing and has an album's worth of typewriter music on Spotify. The playlist is called Just My Type. You can access our archive of shows, 25 years worth, at writersonwriting.com. If you want to get in touch with me, email me at penonfire at earthlink.net. My website is penonfire.com. Marie Stone is at mariestone at gmail.com. And Travis Barrett is at travisbarrettcreative at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. And in the meantime, remember to stay in the chair.